The downtown east side of Vancouver is third world. We live in a open prison yard. Why should my kids have to live in that risk and that danger? Other citizens have rights as well. You have a right not to inhale secondhand crystal meth smoke. It's really a case of the inmates running the asylum. What is happening to Canada, a country once considered immune from the most appalling displays of homelessness and chaos, has become an epicenter for shocking, violent and at times random attacks as drug use has burst into the open and a devastating battle with addiction has literally left tens of thousands of Canadians dead. But what is the solution? Do we simply need a so-called safe supply of toxic drugs? Should more provinces follow the lead of BC and decriminalize fentanyl, meth and cocaine? Or is it time to put victims first, crack down on crime and get addicts the help and treatment they so desperately need? I hate the word safe supply because you would probably think it was safe to take. And that's the problem is that it's not safe. Most people who are using this have never tried drugs before this. Like, it's definitely creating a lot more addicts than there was before. What we're doing now is almost capital punishment in our streets by neglect. This is like the industrialization of addiction. It's as scary as it gets. My name is Aaron Gunn, and this is Politics Explained. We begin with breaking news tonight. Police say a man stabbed and assaulted at least four people, all in a matter of minutes, and they are not sure of the motive. Video of the incident shows the woman pushed from the subway platform onto the tracks. Four victims were treated by paramedics after a woman allegedly assaulted them with a bottle. Police say the victim was hit in the head with a large pole while walking to class. New details tonight about that stabbing attack that left one woman dead and another injured. Police now say this was a random act. Canada is dying. Our once safe city streets increasingly defined by chaos, robberies, assaults, homicides, reckless and random violence with no regard for age, gender, or in some cases, apparent motivation of any kind. A deadly trend that since 2015 has seen violent crime in Canada increase 32%, a reality that has left many Canadians anxious and concerned. According to a recent poll, 64% of Canadians feel crime and violence have been getting worse, while in Vancouver, 40% of residents now report living in fear for their safety on a daily basis. And it's not hard to see why. A woman on a mobility scooter brazenly attacked, bus and Skytrain passengers stabbed and throat slit with a knife. And in March 2023, the shocking, random and graphic murder of a father in front of his wife and young daughter in broad daylight outside of Starbucks on Granville Street. All part of a terrifying trend known as stranger attacks, which have increased 35% in Vancouver last year alone. But these shocking, violent and random attacks are no longer exclusive to Vancouver. 
Toronto police say 16-year-old Gabrielle Magalois was sitting on a bench at this Toronto subway station Saturday evening when a man approached him unprovoked. Magalois was stabbed. He was rushed to hospital but died not long after. He didn't die from like being sick or anything. He was like stabbed in here and he bled out. A day after the moving memorial to Gabriel's life, I visited the scene of his murder to talk to Toronto residents still reeling from the attack. You know, it's very unsafe. I've been here, I've living here for many years and in every, that is the worst year I see this Toronto, that is the worst year. And when you see something like that, you feel in shock because it's, uh, you never know what is coming. The randomness of it as well is just really disturbing. I don't know, as a young woman especially, it's like really scary. It's really upsetting because we were not that much older than him. One is far more wary on the lookout. Very sad, you know, 16 years old, for God's sake. No child should, should die like that. No adult should die like that. This is sheer sloppiness from the government. Yeah, uh, it goes without saying that everybody should feel safe and not have to, you know, get on the subway platform without fear, with fear of getting stabbed. Like, I feel like that's the bare minimum. But the murder of Gabrielle Megalese was hardly an isolated incident on the TTC. Canada's largest transit system has been rocked by shocking, violent attacks over the past year from random shootings to a woman literally set on fire. I sat down with the former police chief of Toronto, Mark Saunders, to discuss how violence on the TTC and in Toronto more broadly has begun to spiral out of control. You know, you were the, the chief of police. How does that make you feel to see what's kind of happened to your city? Where it seems like people are scared to, to ride the, the transit system. Yeah, the, the, the transit system is, is the lifeblood for so many people. And, and the fact that they are, are scared, it's just not good. Um, you know, you were talking about a ridership that at one point in time was 1.2 million um, and it's now 860 something. It is a concern. Uh, it's a starting point of, of other things and um, whatever you do, don't, don't normalize. Don't normalize disorder. Don't normalize crime. Because if you do, then it moves exponentially. And, you know, we're, we're watching how, how Toronto is moving that way. And each attack leaves not only a victim, but cascading trauma and pain that can level communities, bystanders, and families most of all. Woke up in the morning and I had a Facebook message from my son Doug's partner. She wanted me to call her. So I phoned her and she told me that there had been a random stabbing in Chilliwack the night before. And, um, and then she told me that he didn't make it. I got it through my head and, um, you know, shortly after hung up the phone and I had to say to my husband, probably the worst thing he's ever had to hear in his whole life, that his son had been murdered. I guess it started with an altercation with this uh, other man, Steve, and um, he ended up murdered and then a, a girl is on the ground with a stab wound and my son steps up to help. Now, there's this, a couple kind of shocking revelations reading about this particular case, but the one that still I come back to over and over again was the fact that this is an individual with a long criminal history. Uh, when I learned that this uh, person had over 50 convictions, some of them with a knife, in his past he'd been labeled a sexual offender, um, some of them with young, uh, younger girls. When you have that many convictions, 
I don't understand how our justice system can allow him to be out walking the streets. My son should never have been murdered. Instead of being behind bars for his over 50 criminal convictions, Kirkland Russell was free to roam our streets. And because of that, Doug Persaud was murdered. Even more shockingly, for the crime of stabbing Persaud 14 times with a knife and killing him while screaming out, why won't you effing die? Russell received a sentence of only eight years. Do you think eight years in prison is justice for taking the life of your son? I'm pretty sure everybody knows my answer. Um, absolutely not. I mean, nothing will bring my son back, but eight years certainly doesn't uh, help be, help account for it at all. Um, it's almost a slap in the face. It eight is, years. It is a slap in the face to my son trying to help someone out, done absolutely nothing wrong. And then what shocked us further was that you actually get statutory release in two, after two thirds of your sentence. So we were shocked once again. So he was let out in, uh, in November on parole and um, sent to a halfway house. But when someone's had this many convictions and they keep progressingly getting more violent, more violent, more dangerous, when he's out on our streets, someone else is going to get hurt or, or murdered. This disturbing trend of a repeat violent offender being released to our streets is unfortunately not an isolated incident. In fact, Jordan O'Brien Tubin, the man accused of killing 16-year-old Gabriel Magalese, had already racked up dozens of criminal convictions himself, including for stabbing someone else just one year earlier and was on probation at the time of the attack. Instead of being behind bars, he too was set free. And because of that, Gabriel is dead. But just how common is it for our justice system to release dangerous repeat offenders like Kirkland Russell and Jordan O'Brien Tubin? And has Canada's justice system become little more than a revolving door? To find out, I traveled to Ottawa to meet with Larry Brock, a former Crown Attorney from Brantford, Ontario, who now represents his riding as its Member of Parliament. I was just seeing more and more familiar faces in the criminal justice system being largely responsible for the, uh, the most significant proportion of serious criminal violence in our community. A lot of stabbings, a lot of shootings, and frustrating aspect was they were continually being released. These so-called prolific offenders who are consistently arrested and then released are responsible for a majority of the crime across the country. The problem has gotten so bad in British Columbia that the mayors of the 13 largest municipalities wrote to then Attorney General, now Premier David Eby, literally begging the government to do something. They shared data that showed just 207 of the most prolific offenders in the province were responsible for more than 11,000 negative interactions with police in the last year alone. A catalyst for surging crime and violence that has not been limited to large metropolitan cities like Vancouver, but has also affected much smaller municipalities, including Victoria, Kelowna, and the once peaceful Vancouver Island city of Nanaimo. 
Recent numbers show severe crime up 44% here in Nanaimo. I don't feel safe. It's the first time I've, you know, I carry a knife now. I will pull this and it's an alarm to, to, for me to feel safe. I don't feel safe in my neighborhood. This is Kevin Shaw, an outspoken and longtime Nanaimo resident who's fed up with the skyrocketing crime and violence plaguing his hometown. It's gone from where we just had uh, people freaking out, yelling and screaming, uh, to needles, to knives being used, to machetes. A man who had been stabbed staggered into the mall. Bystanders rushed to help, trying to stop the bleeding, and did not survive. Two axes being used just a few weeks ago, and now several shootings in just the last month. Residents rallied in Nanaimo Thursday following a brazen shooting over the weekend. It just exploded. A man came out of nowhere, grabbing her by the throat. And when she screamed for him to get off of her, he proceeded to grab her breasts. Aiden ties up here. You don't know who this guy is at this point. It's just Not some random clue. guy. Not a clue. As an adult, Ty has been criminally convicted more than 110 times. Then he picked up a paving stone, and then next thing you know, he threw it at my wife, and he hit my wife right here while she was 34 weeks pregnant. Uh, we've had a bow and arrow that had a needle on it just a few weeks ago that was going to be aimed at somebody and shot with that needle on the end of it. I saw right over there a guy swinging around a machete. We want to feel safe to come down to our downtown. We don't want to have it taken and run over. If Nanaimo's downtown seems a little quiet, it may be related to how people are feeling about it. Among the downtown residents feeling less safe is Brian Rice. You've been broken into then? Yeah, many times. I, uh, it, it, at one point it was like literally every six weeks I was, I was having a, a break in. If you're struggling to meet your rent payment and somebody steals your kid's bicycle or your kid's bicycles, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a crisis for you. People rarely say, gee, Len, I need the pothole fixed. They immediately want to talk about the street disorder. I use that term to describe all of the things that go on that are disturbing to people. And that is, is occurring a lot. In this one block area of Victoria Crescent, over the last month, five businesses have had their windows smashed just last night right here at uh, that 50s barbershop. And how has this location generally been, been over those six, past 16 years? The past four or five years, it really started to sink down and, and get really rough. And I've built it up for 16 years and every little piece of this is a part of my personality. So to see it smashed and stuff all over the floor and stuff is very disheartening. Terrible. Security footage captures what police say is a drug fueled rage in Nanaimo last night. The window was uh, broken at uh, 10 o'clock last night. The police got him because we could identify him. And the cop said he'll be out just after he goes to court in the morning after breakfast. You can talk to the RCMP, an officer right now, if he walked by. They could name off the top of their head who that small group of people are that are causing these problems. This small group of repeat offenders have frustrated police not only in Nanaimo, but across the country, who increasingly feel handcuffed by a system that simply isn't allowing them to do their jobs. There's a lot of frustration on the part of the police officers for the amount of time it goes into to getting a charge before the courts, and they find that individual has been released and he commits another crime. They may be arrested at 8 o'clock in the morning, 
and they're telling police officers who arrest them, they're laughing at them, saying, I'm going to be released before you even finish your shift. And it's true. Which means if this is your 50th or 60th or 100th conviction for shoplifting, B&E, uh, theft of auto, the chances of you actually going to jail for any significant time is almost nothing, zero. I had a conversation with a cop one night and he said, you know, there's nobody more aware of this problem than the police. You know, he said, many of us got into the police force to fight crime, to protect our communities. And he says, we spend our time babysitting criminals. We'll have an individual who does uh, shoplifting and they'll have 50 to 60 convictions just on shoplifting. This is what you, the people you see downtown who are breaking into cars and doing residential or commercial B&Es and theft from vehicles, this kind of stuff. Do people, do you think, kind of these repeat criminals think they can game the system? They have. They've been gaming the system since I've been a Crown Attorney. They've been certainly gaming it under Justin Trudeau's watch in 2015 and continue to do so. With Canadians living in fear and municipalities begging for help, how has the federal government responded? Has Justin Trudeau passed legislation to keep repeat violent offenders behind bars? Or by introducing Bill C-5 in 2021, has he elected to go in a decidedly different direction? There was 14 significant criminal offenses. Kidnapping, criminal harassment, discharging a weapon in the commission of offense, an armed robbery, trafficking in drugs, such as fentanyl. There were significant mandatory minimum penalties for those offenses. That's what the government took away. Justin Trudeau's Bill C-5, supported by the NDP, received royal assent in 2022, meaning that for the past year, 14 serious offenses carried no minimum sentences at all. But even more controversially has been another piece of legislation, Bill C-75. The Liberal government has tabled Bill C-75. This looks at changing the way that our courts work with the goal of getting to more cases faster and perhaps making the process less prone to discrimination. The federal government brought in a bill, I think it was 2019, called Bill C-75. And in C-75, uh, quite simply, it lowered the bar when it comes to uh, judicial interim release. So it made it, made it easier for violent or repeat offenders to get bail. Right. Right. Bill 75 was a bill that, that changed the, uh, the nature of the criminal justice system. Judges were sort of dictated to consider release as the opening position for any individual, regardless of circumstance, regardless of the offense, regardless of the criminal record of the offender. It, it shackled the discretion of judges. It emphasized to Crown attorneys that we need to focus on the releasing the accused. I love being a Vancouver police officer. I don't know if I could do this job today because I'd, I'm sure I would find it way too frustrating. So if you're taking a shoplifter and you've arrested this person three times or four times and you learn that they've got 150 previous convictions and you're filling out this report that takes you two hours, knowing when you're writing it, it's going to go to Crown, he's going to get bail, he's going to be out or she's going to be out in a matter of hours, and they're going to go back and do the same thing, possibly at the same store. So there is a frustration factor because you don't ever get ahead of things. 
because the system doesn't allow you to prevent this occurring again. And it isn't just thieves, vandals, and other petty criminals that have been receiving bail en masse since the passage of the bill. In the past three years, individuals arrested for violent offenses who were then subsequently released were involved in 26 homicides and more than 2,100 assaults in the city of Edmonton alone. While in Windsor, violent crimes committed by those out on bail have increased by more than 400%. Since its, since its passage and some of the bail reform, we've seen some very uh, high profile crimes, murders being committed by people out on bail. I believe the individual that killed the OPP officer was on bail. That individual ought to have been detained in custody should have remained in custody, that was a completely avoidable tragedy in my view. There, there are some members of the community that shouldn't have the right to be out. They're just so highly violent. Their, their, their history shows that when they're released, they are going to commit serious violence towards the community. And by ignoring it, you're putting communities in harm's way. To illustrate just how incomprehensible the situation has become, data from British Columbia shows that since the introduction of Bill C-75, judges even granted bail 75% of the time to individuals charged with committing a violent offense who were already out on bail for another criminal charge. The kind of brazen insanity that solicited the rare, nonpartisan rebuke from all 13 provincial and territorial premiers in the country in the form of a signed letter demanding changes addressed to Prime Minister Trudeau. But a closer look at cop killer Randall McKenzie's bail application shows something else equally troubling. The judge acknowledged McKenzie's record of violent crime, but decided to release him anyways due to his indigenous identity. Part of a growing and controversial trend in Canada's justice system to weigh ethnicity and skin color against concerns of public safety. In Vancouver, police are now forced to take into account a suspect's ethnicity when deciding whether or not to handcuff them. While across BC, the NDP government explicitly directs prosecutors to weigh against pursuing criminal charges just because an offender happens to be indigenous and approach retired VPD officer Curtis Robinson strongly disagrees with. If you commit a crime, the color of your skin shouldn't matter. You just broke into the house and beat this guy half to death with a pipe. Everybody should be subject to the same rules. The color of your skin should not be a factor. Uh, another thing that's propped up a lot um, is the idea that there are two different standards in the criminal justice system for people with different ethnic backgrounds. Do you think that's a slippery slope to go down as, as a country? Well, my view has always been that the law in Canada should apply the same to everyone, irrespective of color, ethnicity, sex, whatever. There shouldn't be two sets of laws. To me, it's bad policy. You can't, you can't have different rules for different people in the same country. As you said, the case in Saskatchewan, probably should never have happened. I mean, it's hard. On the facts that we know, it's hard to understand why the person was out. In 2022, repeat violent offender Miles Sanderson, who had already been charged 125 times, including twice for attempted murder, was released, in part due to his indigenous identity. He returned back to his small community of James Smith Cree Nation, 
where he would shortly thereafter violently murder 11 innocent people in a stabbing rampage, the majority of whom were indigenous. An example of how releasing violent criminals just because of their ethnic background can boomerang back to hurt those very same Canadians the most. The criminal justice system has abandoned the idea that crime has to be punished. I mean, that's why I think we, we get these strange results because we're, as a society, we seem unable or willing to punish people who do evil things. And when a justice system can no longer prevent criminals from committing crimes or provide victims with the restitution they deserve, individuals often feel forced to take matters into their own hands. Clint Smith, a small business owner from Nanaimo, has had to deal with a crippling amount of property crime at the location of his business. One day, Clint received word from a friend that his recently stolen property had been spotted at a nearby tent encampment, with police either unwilling or unable to retrieve his property on his behalf he headed down the embankment himself along with a small group of friends. As I went down there, I mean, I, I point blank said I wanted no violence, no aggression. Mm -hmm. And I wound up uh, shot in the hospital. And, and yeah, so uh, that part, if you feel comfortable talking about it, obviously at some point, uh, a gun came out from one of these individuals. Or, mm, or three guns. different guns. Three different guns. Yeah, one was a pellet gun, one was a 22 rifle. You were shot with a 22. I was shot with a 22. There was a lot of 22 shots flying around mm -hmm. all over the place. Mm -hmm. The biggest failure as a father and biggest regret as a family man is what I put my wife and my son through. Clint spent five days in a medically induced coma, undergoing three surgeries, which saved his life. But four days later, after Clint woke up, his attacker had already been released on bail, and Craig Edwards Truckle, who had inexplicably only been charged with pointing a firearm, added another offense to his already lengthy criminal record. I don't think I can emphasize how crucially critical this has affected my family. My wife has been traumatized, my son has been traumatized. It's ruptured the community around me. I feel like I'm like an epicenter of fractures through our community. This shocking story and others have galvanized the community, banding together to form safety groups like the Nanaimo Area Public Safety Association. I met with a member of that group who watches over Knob Hill Park in downtown Nanaimo. Has this park had any problems itself? This park has had huge problems, not when I was growing up. It was a safe place. Everyone, you know, the kid, this was filled with kids and you just came home at dinner time kind of thing. Yeah. Nowadays, your car gets broken into, um, petty crimes, mm -hmm. constantly. Um, you can find people in your backyard sometimes shooting up. Mm -hmm. There's shady people, you know, staying overnight here, tenting. The park can get filled with needles. Uh, you just, w you would not be able to leave your child or let your child go to the park. But it's not just parks where homelessness, open drug use and anarchy have taken over it's in much of the downtown. In Nanaimo, a city of just 100,000, there are an estimated 700 people suffering from drug addiction, currently living homeless on the streets. To get a sense of the scale of the issue in the city, I joined Nanaimo community safety officers as they conducted wellness checks downtown on those at risk to OD. It became immediately apparent that this small coastal city 
had a very serious problem. Versus kind of the drug and addiction problem gotten in Nanaimo compared to when you were growing up here. Yeah, yeah I can't even quantify how bad it's got, but uh, it, it's it's bad. You know, like I say, I'm born and raised here, and this is the worst I've I've seen uh, the streets. And this right now, just to explain what's happening, you guys do this. This is a, uh, this is a wellness check. Yeah, just a wellness check. So uh, make sure people are okay. You know, do they need to be connected with uh, our island health partners for a wound care? Hey, you guys okay? You guys good? Okay, just checking. Nanaimo has eclipsed its highest annual total of overdose deaths in just 10 months. It's a terrifying trend taking place across the country and it's killing an average of 17 Canadians a day. The powerful opioid fentanyl is the main driver. It's been found in the systems of 85% of people who overdosed this year. Drug addiction in Canada is out of control. Crack, crystal meth, fentanyl. These dangerous drugs have ravaged Canadian communities, killing more than 6,000 Canadians just last year, including more than 2,000 from British Columbia alone. An increase of more than 1,000% in just 15 years. But just how addictive are these drugs and what makes them so addicting? To answer that question, I met with Dr. Nathaniel Day, an addictions medicine specialist and former member of Alberta's Opioid Emergency Response Commission. Opioid addiction is such a terrible affliction. Like if you and I were evil and we were trying to mess up people's lives using a drug, an opioid's the perfect drug to do that with. If you take the same dose that makes you high today for about five or six days, that dose will not make you high in that same way after that five or six days. And you'll need more. As soon as you stop, you get desperately sick. You know, that withdrawal nightmare really is reinforcing for people where their brain's screaming at them saying, you can fix this right now. All you have to do is score. The prevalence of drugs like fentanyl in the streets of Nanaimo have made overdoses a common occurrence, with a record 74 people dying in the city from overdose just last year. Part of a much larger battle with addiction, I witnessed firsthand again that evening when I accompanied a community safety officer on his nightly patrol. After only an hour, we came across one such individual in serious medical distress. For ambulance, please. Thank you.
the community safety officer I was with introduced me to a homeless woman the following morning. I wanted to know how the streets had changed since the opioid epidemic had spiraled out of control. The opioid epidemic, I mean, you obviously have uh, a front row seat to, to, to being an IMO and homeless, like yes. most affected communities, and over 2,000 people died last year in BC from overdose. Yes. Have you seen that also been getting worse? Um, I didn't even know what uh, an overdose really was. I had never seen it until I was on the streets. Um, I've seen it too many times now. The, the past two years, I don't know how many people, how many of my friends that I've lost a lot, so it's, yeah, it's just getting worse. Um, I can tell you as of right now in the last five days, five people have, have passed away that are actually quite close to me. Uh, I had a good friend of mine who overdosed in the forest here just last night, actually. Do you, do you have a problem with the addiction of anything or alcohol? Yeah, 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 fentanyl for sure, yeah. Is there a reason why you prefer kind of the forest than, than the streets? Um, you know, not that many people come into the forest, especially at night. It's not as safe as night, at night as it used to be. A lot of people we've talked to said it's got sketchier being on the street than it used to be. Because there's a lot more of them. I've seen a lot of new faces in the last three weeks. Really? A lot of new faces. And that creates some issues? Or it creates can. havoc. It used to be somewhat safe. You used to be able to sleep outside and it would be okay. Your shit wouldn't get stolen. It's been the last, I'd say about four years. It's gotten progressively worse. Now it's just the worst. When I, when I first started living on the streets here, there, were only, there was just a short handful of us. We were a small, tight-knit group for the most part, but now there's there's just so many freaking homeless people everywhere. Do you feel less safe than you used to? Oh yeah. Are you kidding? I sleep with something in one hand and something in the other hand, and I'm not kidding. Like, you have to hide. Otherwise, you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, you get four guys, there's nothing I can do. Nine out of ten people on the street are, are carrying a weapon uh, at all times, I would say. What do you think's causing that? And is it different kinds of drugs, just new people, or? Um, I think it's a combination of a few things. The drug thing where people go into psychosis and mm -hmm. stuff. The junkies that are on the nod. You could deal with someone right now, and an hour from now, they're having a, a mental breakdown, or they're high, or coming down off their drugs, and they've got a rock and want to smash a window out, or there's conflict amongst the group. How much of it, in your opinion, is being fueled directly or indirectly by issues relating to drugs? drugs and drug addiction? Well, there, there's two issues. One, we have prolific offenders who are the curriculum vitae, I'm a criminal, I do crime. And normally to fuel their drug addiction. Then we have issues in the community where people who have drug addictions, they have mental health issues that are unchecked, those are the ones that are causing real concern. Those are the ones where we see these sporadic incidents of violence, where they're fixated on a window and they break it, or they'll randomly assault somebody in a community. That's troubling. How much of that is directly or indirectly related to drug and drug addiction? <laughs> I would say all of it. And when your cities have rampant open drug use, the chaos that inevitably follows is right out in the open for all to see. Random attacks are on the rise. 
Vancouver police are investigating an early morning homicide on the downtown east side. It is the same Tim Hortons where an employee had hot coffee thrown at her a week earlier. A disturbing murder on the downtown east side. He was found badly burned shortly after midnight. A stranger to her came up to her, uh, poured some sort of flammable substance on her and lit her on fire. The suspect allegedly stabbed our victim uh, with a hypodermic needle. When it comes to lawlessness and drug-fueled chaos, there is still no place quite like Vancouver's downtown east side. I met with Leo Knight, a retired Vancouver police officer, to ask him how the downtown east side had changed over the past 30 years. People did not live on the streets uh, back in the day in the downtown east side. There was no such thing as injecting drugs on the street. It just wouldn't happen. I guarantee you that if you go down the downtown east side right now, they're all drug addicts. The 100 East Hastings now is, is it's a zoo. Uh, it's, it's the largest, largest open-air drug bazaar in the world. Accompanied by rampant drug addiction and the mental health issues it brings, the downtown east side is a dangerous place. Marshall Smith was once a resident of the downtown east side before entering recovery and gradually rebuilding his life. Incredibly, rising to the rank of Chief of Staff to Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. At some point around 2004, uh, sort of lost my career to drug use and wound up hanging up my suit and tie uh, at the legislature and vanishing into the streets of Vancouver where I lived for four and a half years as a, as a homeless drug addict. Uh, obviously those were very dark and difficult times in my life. As part of Marshall's role as Chief of Staff to the Premier, and because of his unique background and experience, he has helped spearhead Alberta's opioid response strategy over the past four years. A strategy that differs significantly from the one being pursued by David Eby in British Columbia and supported by Justin Trudeau. We're willing to work with provinces who want to move forward on different steps. We're having good conversations with uh, British Columbia about something they want to do there. But they're specifically calling for decriminalizing drugs. Yes, they are. And we are looking at where to do that. British Columbia is looking at that, at that talking with that, and we are working with them to see how we can move forward with them in the right way. On January 31st, 2023, the government of BC granted approval by the federal government made it legal to possess certain quantities of hard drugs, including crystal meth, heroin, fentanyl, and cocaine. Declaring in no uncertain terms that open drug use was now legal on the streets of British Columbia. And the results were immediate and available for all to see. How did that like change on, a, on the ground like that you've seen with your own two eyes? Oh, within, within the same day, the, everything changed. The next day it was tenfold. It was everywhere, people using like crazy. There was a guy in the washroom shooting up and they said, hey, you can't do this in here. And he, say, and he said, it's legal now. We can, we can do whatever we want, so you can't stop us. It's illegal to do drugs on school property or at the airport. Mm -hmm. The rest is fair game. And they actually said there's more stricter bylaws about smoking tobacco near my door than there is about drugs. So you can't smoke a cigarette near my door, but you can smoke meth. All the rules are gone now, mm -hmm. so it doesn't matter. You can openly smoke crack in front of a store, and someone that tells you you've got to move on is going to tell you where to go. Is it, is it easier to 
take it or dissuade someone from drinking alcohol openly in public than using some of these other substances? Well, we can actually do something yeah. when somebody's drinking in public. We can issue a ticket for, I think it's $230 mm-hmm. for consuming public. And where somebody is smoking a small amount of crystal meth or fentanyl, mm-hmm. and it's under the 2.5 grams, there's, there's nothing we can do if they're not within those sanctioned areas. Candidly, we know that the police for the last few years, pretty much everywhere, have not been charging drug users who had small amounts anyway. If I walk down the street and I'm with a beer in my hand, I could be arrested and fined. But if I'm taking crystal meth sitting on the bench in front of, uh, you know, everybody's favorite coffee shop, no big deal. It, it, it's that kind of approach. And, and again, as I, I understand the concept, mm-hmm. but I must say just as a human being and a citizen, it ain't saleable politically. It doesn't make sense. And no one honestly believes it's going to reduce the number of deaths from the toxic drug supply. The only thing that that does is empower the drug dealers and empower the gangs. Basically what you're doing is you're giving them the ability to have under the legal limit and that they just have to do extra runs for the drugs. But if police weren't arresting drug users for possession, why did Trudeau and the BC government push ahead with their plan to decriminalize drugs? Well, in their words, it's all part of their plan to destigmatize drug use across Canada, believing that this will somehow entice more drug users to seek treatment and recovery. Through this exemption, we will be able to reduce the stigma, the fear and shame that keep people who use drugs silent about their use. But is that actually true? My experience is that there, you know, people who are who are struggling with addiction don't really care about the stigma associated with possessing drugs or or using drugs. There is a certain narrative that if you say that's stigmatizing, one is supposed to inherently apologize, you know, I I should approve of everything. No one really believes that. You know, it's a question of what do we stigmatize? The challenge is that sometimes shame and stigma are why people seek treatment. We have never had more success Uh, when it comes to uh, treating addiction in our society than we have with addiction to tobacco. Um, And we take a very strong approach, right? We tell people that they should quit. We tell them that help is available. We make that help free. Uh, You know, we help them in their recovery. We expose them to the consequences of their actions. We stigmatize them, (laughs) right, Uh, you know, for what they're doing. But for whatever reason, uh, you know, the advocate, drug user advocates have gone a different direction with other substances. They started with this, what they call harm reduction, right? Trying to prevent the harms instead of preventing drug use. And I say the biggest form of harm reduction is preventing drug use in the first place. You know, these people who sit in their little offices somewhere and have never dealt with an addict, have never treated an addict, have never talked even to an addict like I have, think that people don't go to treatment because of the stigma involved. Well, that's horse hockey. You know, like when, when, when someone's addicted, all they're capable of is thinking about how they get their next fix. You know, the brain gets hijacked by the addiction. Harm reduction is like throwing in a life preserver but leaving them in the river. Over the past 20 years, drug prevention programs in British Columbia have been scaled back dramatically and replaced with what's known as harm reduction, ranging from the provision of naloxone kits to students as young as 15, 
to the distribution in at least one case of safer snorting kits at a high school on Vancouver Island. But in truth, these so-called harm reduction policies from government, along with decriminalization, are only just the beginning. Their real objective is something else entirely. We know that anchoring ourselves in science and data, making sure that issues of uh, harm reduction, safe consumption are put to the forefront. We will continue to be grounded in what works, in compassion, in evidence. Making sure there's a safer supply so people who are addicted uh, can get clean drug supplies as opposed to having to buy the dirty and deadly stuff. Safe supply. It's a buzz phrase used by politicians and drug advocates alike, meant to instill public confidence that the powers that be are taking the overdose crisis seriously and are doing something about it. But what does it mean? According to Health Canada, safe supply or safer supply refers to providing prescribed medications as a safer alternative to the toxic illegal drug supply. Its intention is to help prevent overdoses and save lives. Now, at first glance, that sounds pretty good. But looking deeper into what safe supply really means, the sunshine and rainbows quickly fade into a dark dystopian nightmare. You're looking at what's intended to be British Columbia's first legal cocaine lab. On February 17, 2023, Ad Astra Holdings, a cannabis company based in Langley, BC, received approval from Health Canada to legally import cocoa leaves and manufacture cocaine. The company's CEO said in a press release that it will explore the commercialization of cocaine to provide a safe supply of the drug. This follows a ramping up of supposed harm reduction policies in the province even the launch of vending machines containing heroin substitutes, all under the guise of safe supply. But this isn't just happening in BC. I traveled to London, Ontario, the epicenter of the push for safe supply in that province, to meet with Dr. Sharon Koivu, an expert in the field of addiction and safe supply. I wanted to know exactly how long this has been happening in London and where it all came from. Safe Supply started in London in about 2012. There were lots of people who were very vulnerable, um, particularly people that were identified as being vulnerable were street level sex workers. So the initial thought was to keep people safe so they don't have to be selling their bodies um, to get drugs, was to give them a prescription. And the prescription that was decided on was Dilaudid. Dilaudid is the brand name for the opioid hydromorphone, a drug used in medical settings to reduce severe short-term pain. This hydromorphone, uh, for people that don't know, for including myself, is this kind of a low-level opioid or is this, is this a powerful? No, it's a powerful addictive opioid. It's um, similar to Oxycontin. Um, it's a very powerful, very addictive opioid. Once a last-ditch pain medication, hydromorphone has found its way into the safe supply program. It's now freely prescribed by doctors to addicts as a theoretical substitute for street drugs. We are giving out huge amounts 
of a very highly addictive, very dangerous opioid narcotic. Uh, look, safe supply is a marketing term. It's not a medical term. Uh, it's a term that was made in a boardroom with communications experts and, and advocates, and it's made to communicate to people the feeling of safety. It's not safe. You're referring to that as though it was safe and it's not safe. I don't like calling it safe supply because it's not safe. But how different really is hydromorphone from other opioids like fentanyl? How powerful is hydromorphone and how addictive can it be? To find out, I met with a pharmacist in BC who wished to remain anonymous for fear of losing her job. Basically the biggest one for safe supply is hydromorphone. Hydromorphone is like 20 times stronger than morphine. This whole term of like safe supply, like I'd like to know what the definition of safe is. There's no such thing as a safe opioid. Would you be concerned if you had family members or friends that started using these on a regular basis? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Like I would never take it. I would never tell one of my friends to take it. Funny enough, I actually did one time. My friend broke her ankle and she was prescribed hydromorphone for pain but she was prescribed one milligram tablets. To compare that to the safe supply, the one that we prescribed was eight milligrams. So she was prescribed one milligram for pain, and I even warned her on how addictive that can be. How many pills would you guess that you, you would dispense on an average shift? Probably a thousand a day. A thousand? A thousand a day. If one milligram of hydromorphone can be dangerous and addictive, you can imagine how dangerous the eight milligram pills are that are freely handed out to addicts. But perhaps that is the point. Pharmacies are a business like any other, and they rely on a steady stream of customers. And with the addictive nature of hydromorphone, it's big business for these pharmacies. And that has led to some shady business practices. Can you also explain there were some scandals in the downtown east side mm -hmm. that you also saw mm -hmm. about how what was going on between the pharmacies? Yeah, so I think it's more prominent on the downtown east side because there's so many pharmacies. Like you go down the street and you see, it's like Starbucks. You see, you see pharmacies on every single corner. Um, but when you're somewhere like Vancouver where there's so many different pharmacies, it's like what makes a patient want to choose this pharmacy or the other pharmacy, right? A lot of the pharmacies on the downtown east side will provide like monetary incentives to their patients to come to their pharmacy. Essentially kickbacks? Uh, yeah. Like, and you, you saw that? Like it was... It yeah, like it was normal. And then pharmacies will offer more and more money because they want those people to come use their pharmacy, basically. Because I guess if it's a daily thing, and it's yeah. for a whole year, it could be $10,000 exactly. $10, in business for them. So you offer a patient 100 bucks. It's the whole world to them, but it's nothing to these pharmacy owners mm -hmm. based on how much money they'll make off of them. Illegal business practices aside, maybe paying addicts to take safe supply is a good thing. That is, if bribing an addict to take hydromorphone means they won't take fentanyl, shouldn't that decrease deaths from overdose? Since the introduction of these so-called safe supply drugs, um, have you seen that help with reducing uh, fentanyl and fentanyl overdoses? We had very little fentanyl in London prior to Safe Supply. Since Safe Supply, we now have a huge problem with fentanyl in this city. There has been an increase in overdose deaths, an increase in use of fentanyl, and a decrease in the cost of fentanyl in the city as well. The presence of hydromorphone 
is not touching in any positive way fentanyl on the street. If anything, it is fueling it. But how could it possibly be that giving people a replacement for fentanyl would somehow increase their use of that exact same drug? Addicts want fentanyl, right? They want the big high and the big hit. They pursue fentanyl because it is a, it's a superior high to what they're getting from, the, from these hydromorph pills. It was just about chasing the next high. It was just about getting high. It didn't phase me. The stronger the drug was, the better that's what people would go look for. Really? Mm-hmm. Because the stronger it is, um, the better. If you know people who are o overdosing on that, that's the stuff that people want. Really? Mm-hmm. Because that's how, I guess, the quality is better when people are overdosing on it. Okay, well, that's the stuff I got to get. I didn't even care, like, I didn't care about my life. Mm -hmm. Do you ever have any experience with seeing patients when it comes to this so-called safe supply mm -hmm. of uh, not adhering to how they were supposed to take it or not taking it at Every all? single day. Every single day. They're either injecting them or they're taking all of them at once, or they're not taking them at all. And that's, the not taking them at all is where wow. I have the biggest problem. And why would they not be taking them at all? To sell them, to make money. And so they'll take their daily supply bottle that they get and they'll sell it on the sidewalk and they'll use the money to buy fentanyl. Right now, for example, I am seeing a patient who has prescribed 40 tablets of D8s that, that are allotted eight milligrams every day. We have her on nine in a day. That means she is likely selling 31 of the 40 pills that she has prescribed. What many Canadians might not understand about safe supply is that most addicts don't want to take the prescribed drugs like hydromorphone. Instead, they get prescription safe supply drugs with the purpose of selling them so they can purchase the drugs they actually want, like fentanyl. And according to the BC pharmacist I spoke with, patients of her pharmacy don't even bother hiding this fact. I see it, quite literally see it every day. I will see patients come into the pharmacy and they will pick up their prescription, walk out of the pharmacy and hand a bottle of pills over to somebody and have a cash exchange and sell their pills. And how easy trigger. would it be for someone to walk over there and get... Easy. I yeah. Very easy. It's, uh, there, there's no control o over the medications. My kids could walk around the corner and easily get it. Mm -hmm. People would be prescribed these medications and there would be people waiting outside the pharmacy um, in one of the towns here. Mm -hmm. They would be waiting outside the pharmacy because they knew someone was going to eventually come out and sell their prescriptions. It's become so common to sell your prescription safe supply that dillies are like a type of currency now. Oh, you want a blanket? Okay, give me two dillies and I'll give you this blanket that I found. Or there's the monetary value of selling it. And most often times, patients will sell their Dilaudids and then go buy something stronger. It took us about half an hour on East Hastings Street and we were able to buy 26 tablets. We're told this is hydromorphone, also known as dillies, also known as Dilaudid. Total price, $30, a little more than a buck a pill. I almost feel like sometimes I'm like, this has to be a joke. Like, this isn't happening, right? Like, it's like even people know, like, I'm gonna go wait outside of this pharmacy and that person's gonna go in there and 
get their dillies and then I'm gonna buy it. And it like almost makes a joke of what we're doing. It makes a joke of the pharmacies, it makes a joke of the clinics. Anybody knows that they can just sit outside a pharmacy and buy it. You could go sit there right now and watch it happen. It's very, very in the open. They don't even try to hide it. Far from trying to hide it, sidewalks around the safe supply pharmacies, like this one in Nanaimo, had it all out in the open. The remnants of consumed or traded safe supply littered the streets. A phenomenon that anyone living close to one of these pharmacies in a safe supply province can tell you is a new feature of Canadian cities, no matter their size. Um, I read an article the other day uh, in uh, Nanaimo, I think it was, uh, where they just found, you know, routinely uh, pill bottles littered all over the place from, from addicts getting their supply and, and dumping the bottle and selling it. Colin Middleton, a resident of downtown Nanaimo, lives a block away from a safe supply clinic and pharmacy. After moving to Nanaimo from Calgary, he started to notice a pattern in the garbage littering his street. Late last year, I was just kind of picking up trash on the sidewalk outside of my house. And I came across, you know, a label. I picked it up, looked at it, I was like, I didn't know what hydromorphone was. Why would somebody peel off the label? So then, so then in January, I found another one. I was like, okay, this is a pattern now. But before I knew it, I had over 80 of them. One day I went into the pharmacy, I said, look, there's obviously a problem here and you need to deal with this. And the pharmacist sort of said, like, there's not really much we can do. You know, go talk to the doctor, tell them what you think, or like take it up with the province or whatever. But it's only been since then th that I've come to understand that our medical profession already knows this is happening uh, as a way for, quote, you know, safe supply of opioid medications getting into the street supply. Shockingly, a handful of doctors that prescribe safe supply are not only aware that the hydromorphone is being diverted, they seem not to care. Best case scenario, the doctor will be like, okay, that's not right, let's discontinue it. This patient clearly does not need it for themselves. It's not safe, let's discontinue it. But I've also had situations where I've told the doctors that the patients are selling the medications and they don't care. And I have had doctors tell me, well, that's okay if they're selling because that means that somebody somewhere is getting a safe supply. So it's just crazy how something that was supposed to be meant to help people, what I'm finding is the people that are buying these pills, it's like sometimes people who have never even tried opioids. And what bothers me the most is that I see like young kids coming and buying these pills. The hydromorphone is ending up in the high schools now. And it's become so normalized in high schools that you can walk around in high school and just ask for dillies. Really what the safe supply is doing is it's just creating the next generation of people who have opioid use disorder. This is a 16-year-old girl currently in recovery from hydromorphone addiction. When did you first hear about hydromorphone or, or what kind of names are people using for it on, on campuses? So obviously being young, you don't know too much about what everything's called, what the professional names for, let's say what it is. So it would be Dilly or Dilaudid and stuff like that. Um, nobody ever really calls it hydromorphone or anything like that. Um, and when did you first like hear about it? Do you remember? Or when did you first notice people using them? Or I'd say when I like 
started grade 10, like beginning of grade 10 till beginning of last year, it almost destroyed my life. Thanks to our own government, introducing safe supply drugs like hydromorphone into street circulation, it has now never been cheaper or easier for children to get their hands on highly addictive and deadly opioids. Are people using it, you think, even younger than grade 10? I see 14, 13 year olds using hydromorphone. Like sometimes even 12 year olds. It's. Like, I hate saying it out loud because it's like, you almost don't want to believe it. Like, it doesn't seem real at all, but it's so real. I am now seeing much younger people than I've ever seen in my life. I even had a 15-year-old patient who is in grade nine tell me he started when he was in elementary school. And what kind of opioid did you It would have been Dilaudid. At the direction of our federal government, hydromorphone has flooded our streets and into the pockets of our children. Did you think it was safe and your friends? Yeah, yeah. 100%. Um, me, like, being young, trusting the pharmacy and uh, assuming this can't harm me in the long run type of thing. Um, and it wasn't the case at all, no. We would see uh, patients come in for, for fentanyl use disorder. And now, come 2023, about half of our new intakes are addicted to hydromorphone. I saw it coming. I hoped it would never get into the high schools, but um, yeah, she came through our doors and I almost felt like crying. It was like my nightmare came true. Does it seem weird to both of you that, I mean, this is notionally brought in obviously a safe supply as part of harm reduction. Do you feel like it's creating more harm? A hundred percent. A hundred and ten percent. Most people who are using this have never tried drugs before this, like not opioids or anything like that. So it's just straight to the opioids. Like yeah. it's definitely creating a lot more addicts than there was before. How did this happen? How did we find ourselves in this dystopian reality? Well, according to Marshall Smith, this all began with another medically prescribed opioid, Oxycontin. So this really started with, with a, a company called Purdue Pharmaceuticals. Um, they are widely credited for, you know, for these actions. They doctored the research uh, that went into the safety and effectiveness of their product. They infiltrated the medical regulators. They did everything that they could to get their product, you know, into the hands of, uh, into the hands of patients. And of course, because there was so much of it, you know, going out onto the street, uh, dealers would get it and remarket it, you know, which is which is often what's happening with these safe supply drugs now. After decades of devastation, the BC government launched a class action lawsuit against Purdue Pharma for their role in fueling the BC addictions crisis. But ask yourself, how is government funded safe supply any different than Purdue selling of Oxycontin? especially when you consider that Dilaudid, the brand name for the hydromorphone currently being distributed by the government, is manufactured by the exact same company. Uh, you, you saw all of the damage that was created by Oxycontin in the community. Hydromorph is two to three times stronger than Oxycontin. Uh, stronger, stronger than Oxycontin, for sure. So, so this is a way bigger you know, issue. But Oxycontin caused the problem in the first place. Yes. So the government went after Purdue, yes. kind of 
took their pill bottles off the street yes. and then are supplying a drug that is basically the same except even more powerful. Yes. So they're doing the same thing today that they are currently suing these companies for doing 10 years ago. Except except the drug's more powerful. The drug is more powerful. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't even sound real saying this, but like I have patients who the whole reason that they became addicted to opioids was because one time their doctor prescribed them Oxycontin. They got hooked. So I have th those people who are now getting this prescribed safe supply. They're selling to other people who are just going to end up in this same thing. Like it's just this circle. During the huge ramp up of legally produced, clearly labeled, consistent quality prescription opioids, more Americans and Canadians died of those legally produced opioids than died in World War I and World War II combined. And that, was, that is very, very recent history. We got here from companies saying this same line of reasoning, you know, don't be opioid phobic, we're going to prescribe these very generously, we'll give them out in the community in all kinds of ways at a much higher level than we ever have. And uh, because they are FDA approved or, or approved by you know, Health Canada, um, they're safe. And you know, millions of people got addicted, hundreds of thousands of people died. And we still have people dying from those medications today, including, by the way, a number of people who are dying from street fentanyl. If you follow back their story, they started on one of those, you know, allegedly safe, uh, you know, opioid prescriptions. I started using um, Percocets hmm. and then yeah, I just kind of went downhill after that. I, I was like sleeping in alleys or sometimes I wouldn't even sleep just because like when you go to sleep, people steal your stuff. So at night I'd like do a shot. They're called uh, speed balls where you mix fentanyl and meth together. Mm -hmm. What was kind of the first first one that first pill that you started doing? The Percocet. It was the Percocet. Yeah. Grew up in a really good family. Both of my parents were together. Mm -hmm. It was just the people I was hanging out with at the time mm -hmm. had the drugs, had the beans, and after that first line, I just continued to want it. Uh, it started off with Tylenol ones and. Um, when I no longer needed them, I, find, I found that I was still abusing them. Mm -hmm. And then from there, it just kept going. Then Tylenol 4s, and then Percocets, then Morphine, and then it went to Fentanyl. Um, I remember one day I couldn't even walk. Um, I found myself like crawling to use the washroom. I don't know how many times I had overdosed. I probably overdosed maybe over 10 times. Wow. Yeah. And did you did you have any close calls with with fentanyl? Oh yeah, I've I've overdosed like more than twenty times, I believe. Really? Yeah. I always thought that's how I was gonna die. Was on the streets. Um, it, it even got to a point where my family um, like knew they were gonna lose me like that. When, uh, after you'd overdosed, like, did you? accept the fact that you just might overdose and die one day and that was just part of it or did you not think about that? Or? I didn't think about that. Mm. It, all I thought about was getting high really. And, and what do you, as someone who, who lived it, like what would happen if you go back to when you were on the streets mm -hmm. and they basically went and they offered everybody who was using fentanyl, addicted to fentanyl, a prescription for something like a hydromorphone or, or oxys or, or, or Percocets then they'll never get out of that lifestyle. 
that's just telling them you might as well dig your own grave. We are creating something much worse than the opioid crisis that Purdue had ever started. One of the patients I have um, was not in the safe supply program. His neighbor was in the program. She would sell him about 10 of her Dilaudid in a day. So he was using all of the pills that he was getting and injecting those pills. Um, he has developed through injecting those pills, and that was the only thing that he was injecting. He has developed an infection low down in his spine, and he right now is not able to use his legs at all. I'd be walking and I, they were giving out on me. I was falling down easily and I'm thinking, why am, why am I falling down so easily? And you know, over the course of a couple of days, I wasn't able to walk. Anybody that I bought them from or that I saw with them was, were typically, they were using them intravenously. Okay. <laughs> Definitely. Did that addiction really kind of take hold of you with Percocets or was it the later drugs that really Right grabbed? from Percocets. Yeah. Right from Percocets and they're small, they're small amounts. Mm -hmm. It was all it took. It's not, it's a big deal. It changes a person's life once, mm -hmm. just with one pill. The harm I'm seeing to, to individuals and to the community, there is nothing that can justify that. And I don't know how much suffering has to occur to get that message out. Despite all the pain and suffering I witnessed on this journey, it also became apparent that there was always light at the end of the tunnel. That given the right supports and incentives, in some provinces at least, treatment was available and recovery was possible. I went to jail in 2019 and got out in 2021 and that was like my turning point there. It was, just it was either I go to jail or I go to detox because I had drugs on school property so I chose to go to the detox center. Um, I actually reached out for help one, one day. I knew someone who worked there. I asked her if she can call the detox for me. Um, but I did end up going to detox that very same day. These women were fortunate enough to have access to treatment and detox through Alberta's recovery-oriented system of care a treatment-centric approach to combating drug addiction that has been introduced and greatly expanded over the past four years, and that stands in stark contrast with the strategy of other provinces of simply handing out free drugs. It is now known around the world as the Alberta model. What is the Alberta model? Well, the Alberta model is a model based, you know, deeply on the belief that, that governments prime duty is to help its citizens restore themselves, uh, restore their self-agency. And the model uh, really is about uh, eliminating barriers to access to care, improving the quality of care that is there, and utilizing you know, everything in our arsenal based on high quality evidence. And that evidence is, you know, by and large, you know, around the world. Uh, our model borrows uh, bits and pieces from jurisdictions around the world like Portugal, Switzerland, Massachusetts, uh, and a lot of Alberta ingenuity, quite frankly, that has gone into it. Like the Alberta model, the Portuguese system is famous around the world, but sometimes for the wrong reasons. Drug advocates in Canada often cite the fact that Portugal has decriminalized drugs, while ignoring the more nuanced measures Portugal has taken to combat its addictions crisis. 
a constant source of frustration for Stanford professor and expert in addiction, Dr. Keith Humphreys. They also added something which people don't seem to know about in North America, which is dissuasion commissions. So it's not that if you use drugs in Portugal, no one says anything about it. Police can still grab you. They take you to a commission. It's not there to hurt you, but you know they do um, assess your case, and they may say, okay, you, you know, you don't seem to have a problem. But if they think you do, they will say you need to go to this treatment program, and they can put pressure on you, and they can do some fines. They would not throw you in jail, but it's a very clear message from the authorities that what you're doing is not okay. Uh, and we want you to change. What Alberta is trying to do, is it, is it novel in the North American sense? Is it borrowing from what's been happening in, in Portugal? Or what, what's your sense of what they're trying to do in Alberta? Um, it's a bit like a, uh, one of those impressionist paintings. You have to back up long enough to see the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So first off, it is in fact a system. It's a recovery-oriented system of care. Mm -hmm. So there, instead of it being sort of the stepchild of the policy world where nobody wants to think about addiction, we'll build a few treatment agencies and that's mm -hmm. all we're going to do. It's linked together prevention, early intervention, harm reduction, treatment, and recovery, and across different sectors. So it's not just health. It's social welfare, it's education, it's criminal justice. That, that's, that is critical to the idea of building a system. The second thing is it's animated with a spirit of hope. It is a recovery-oriented system of care. Mm -hmm. So the goal is not merely let's try to modestly reduce overdose deaths, and then we'll call it a day. The aspiration is way higher than that. It's saying we actually want people to get to the point where they are in recovery. Uh, so today in Alberta, any person, whether they're rural or downtown Calgary, where we're at today, uh, anyone can call our toll-free number and get an assessment right now and get started on treatment today. And so our, our median wait time for uh, assessment and treatment uh, in Alberta, in basically every community all across the province is zero days. As part of the goal to extend treatment and recovery to all Albertans who require it, regardless of ability to pay, Alberta has begun construction of 11 large treatment facilities spread out across the province. In Red Deer, the first such facility is almost ready to open. A brand new building I was given a chance to tour with Marshall Smith. Aaron, this is the first of 10 large recovery communities that we're building here in Alberta. Uh, these are different than the sort of normal treatment centers, which are short-term 28-day programs. These facilities are large, high-capacity facilities where clients can come and stay for up to a year at a time. It's individualized care with full medical services. In the one in Rentier, it's 75 beds, 50 on the male side, 25 on the female side. It's separated, they've got separate kitchens. And people are gonna be put through the work. They're going to, have, going to do the therapy in the morning and chores in the afternoon or vice versa. And they're going to have to learn how to cook, learn how to take care of themselves, learn how to take care of the facility, learn how to do some community gardening. Maybe we'll end up seeing some kind of farmer's market there. And we'll be coaching people through how to develop the life skills so that they can get their individual agency back and then setting them on a pathway where they can pay it forward and help others. I, I think that that is a much more inspiring vision than, than simply um, watching people slowly killing themselves, which is I think what the alternative approach has been. We, we, don't, we won't give up on people. Um, and they are healing communities. Um, but things are done in groups, right? And they live a very structured day. Uh, in contrast to um, the pure housing model, 
uh, where people come in and they get a hotel room and that they can continue to use drugs in their hotel room and, uh, and there's no structure to that. Um, I would say that that can be very dangerous. And uh, you know, 75% of fatal overdoses occur at home on the living room floor. So if you're giving somebody a living room floor and you are allowing them to continue using drugs in your facility, the chances are you're probably gonna find somebody dead. Instead of warehousing addicts in hotel rooms like the BC government, these Alberta treatment facilities aim to build recovery communities. Sure, well we call them recovery communities, recovery communities. for a reason, right? Because uh, it isn't just the treatment of addiction that happens here, it is a, a reintegration into community, it's a rebuilding of community. Uh, when people are on the street, um, whether they're in tent encampments or you know you see homeless people gathering, uh, that they do that because that is their community, right? That you know whether that community is attractive to us or not is irrelevant. Addiction is an illness of loneliness, despair, and isolation, and so the antidote to that is building facilities like this where people can come together, where they're not lonely, where they're not isolated, and where they're not in despair. Any opioid uh, vending machines here? No opioid vending machines no. here. No. no. We're going to skip the opioid vending machines. As a government, we believe very deeply that our job as government is to be the cheerleader in chief. We have an obligation to provide the tools, facilities like this, like we do in all kinds of other areas of healthcare, um, to give the people of Alberta the best shot at recovery. For this, the Alberta model has received international attention, hosting a global conference in 2023 to showcase to the world its early success. Over the last decade, we've seen the issues of addiction, homelessness, and public safety grow and affect every community in Alberta. Something definitely does need to be done in the criminal justice system, and you're bringing something that hopefully will get worldwide and fast. Now in Alberta, first jurisdiction, I think anywhere in North America, any Albertan, any time of day, anywhere you live, free of charge with no wait list, can receive treatment on demand, right? Uh, and that is But not everyone is on board with the Alberta model, particularly the advocates for safe supply, decriminalization, and harm reduction in British Columbia some of whom have financial incentives to ensure the Alberta model doesn't succeed. And the chief medical officer here in British Columbia came out and said that, you know, if you're addicted to alcohol, we've got treatment basically that's available to you. But if you're addicted to opioids, you know, you're kind of out of luck and um, right. you're gonna be addicted to these things. We're just gonna basically ease your suffering as much as possible. So how, how does that make any sense? Um. The chief medical officer and the chief coroner uh, are not medical experts uh, in terms of addiction. Uh, and most of the things that they, they are saying are parroting activist and advocacy groups. I don't really know what's going on there, uh, but we don't put any stock uh, in that kind of narrative. Uh, people have been recovering from this illness for generations, for a hundred years. Uh, and, and they will continue to. Um, I think it's very irresponsible uh, for people in positions like that to, to say such things. And, and I'm not sure what they benefit from doing that. 
after the pandemic with the new our new system you know coming uh, on board fatalities in British Columbia have continued to increase and fatalities in uh, in Alberta are sitting at about 50 percent of what British Columbia is at so you know we will continue in Alberta to continue to save lives and to build an effective system of care to get people healthy to help them regain their self-agency and to restore themselves to sanity uh, and and that is what we will continue to do and that is what we are doing but where does my home province of British Columbia go from here? What happens if BC continues down the path of safe supply and decriminalization? Where does it eventually end up? Well, on the very last day of filming this episode, I stumbled upon something I've never seen or heard of before, even on the downtown east side. So we're here in Vancouver on the downtown east side and we're just walking, uh, we're actually here filming something else. And uh, we just came across a story and tracked down and there's a new truck that's just pulled up here that is uh, selling, uh, presumably illegally, but in plain sight, uh, cocaine, crack, MDMA, heroin, and uh, crystal meth or some kind of methamphetamine. So uh, we've taken some, some uh, shots here. We're not sure if anyone's gonna talk to us. That's presumably the line of people who are currently uh, buying these substances. I don't see police or anything anywhere, so not exactly sure what is going on, but uh, such is life in the city of Vancouver. Uh, I think it opened, this is the first day opening, and uh, I'm gonna buy some uh, cocaine. You think it's mainly cocaine, like people in mine, or just a mix of everything? Some people are here for... I, I, I would assume fentanyl. Or, or heroin, right? I don't even know, I haven't even really looked at the menus. So I think moving away from fentanyl is the best thing, of course. You know, once you start doing heroin, fentanyl is the only thing that works for you, right? So that's that's why these people are, you know, zombied out on, on fentanyl um, on the streets, doing crime, robbing people, or breaking into breaking into businesses to support your habit. You know, you're, if you're a detriment to the community, you know, of course it's a difference. As we were about to leave, three men approached me and said they had just seen Vancouver is dying, the prequel to this film. Yeah. So you just watched the video, yeah. Yeah. Just like. 25 minutes ago. This is like a, a crazy, crazy yeah, and no, like double coincidence. Where I was, I was homeless for five and a half years. Yeah. Much like that guy who's now in politics in... Uh, Marshall Smith, yeah. Yeah, just so a lot like him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, we put a lot of effort into keeping this one area very clean. Mm -hmm. And then we have this going on right here. Yeah. A block yeah. down the road, we have a recovery house, That's treatment cool. center, and it's uh, right here. Is it kind of, uh, I mean, weird to you that there's like a block away from addictions clinic? They're just openly selling the same drug. It's I mean, how does that make you feel? You just walk of it. It's kind of insulting, especially for people who are just trying to get in, and then yeah. they, they they walk past. They have to walk past this every day. Yeah. Addiction is a disease of loneliness and isolation. That says we do not have a disease, mm -hmm. right? It's a disease of more, and without without recovery, it's it's a field day out there. <laughs> 